All right, first of all, uh, praise be to our loving Abba for gathering us together to study his words. We have several questions. We have many questions, as a matter of fact, that we're going to be discussing today. We'll begin with transgenderism. Uh, this was presented to us by a brother, but we will not disclose his name um, for obvious reasons. Kajan Po, just wondering, especially since it's becoming mainstream, and that's important, What's our stance on transgender? How do we explain our stance respectfully and biblically? Want to have kids and concern they could be caught up with it. And so what our brother is saying concerns the mainstream idea and acceptance of the theme of transgenderism. Now, this topic was really not talked about much not too long ago, but nowadays when you go to college, when you go to high school, when people identify with their gender and their identity, there seems to be a blurring of identity roles bringing about confusion. And so there are people nowadays who identify as a transgender. Some identify as male, female, homosexual, so on and so forth. There seems to be so many different categories nowadays. And so what does the Bible say about all of these ideas? And so let's begin by giving a rough definition of what transgender or transgenderism means. And so we got this from the website, uh, Live Science, transgender, formerly gender, gender identity disorder, an umbrella term for an ever-changing and evolving population and subculture of people who feel the gender they were assigned at birth is false or incomplete description of who they are psychologically. And so transgender uh, is an umbrella term, and it's hard to pinpoint specifically what transgender encapsulates because it's always changing. It was, it's hard to give a single definition of what it means. Being an umbrella term, it could include so many different ideas concerning gender identity, sexual identity. Now, what is its essence? What does it mean? Well, when people are born a specific sexual uh, identity, or maybe uh, they're born with certain physical uh, genitalia, for example. For example, they're born as females based on their physiology, but based on their psychology, they feel they are males. So psychologically, they believe they identify with a male person, but physiologically or biologically, they, they are clearly uh, female. And so that creates a conflict within themselves. And I can only imagine the kind of pain a person is going through when you have this kind of identity issues or identity problem. So it's something we do need to talk about. And it seems it's not getting any better because nowadays, when we speak about gender identity, uh, even when you make an app or, or, or uh, when you are filling out an application, maybe online, Facebook, uh, sometimes when they ask you for gender, you have other options rather than male and female, right? For example, they want your basic information. You click gender. It says, are you female? Are you male? Or custom. You can now create your own gender. And so this creates even more conflict. People are now more confused 
because sometimes they have these feelings in their mind and they think they're identifying with one gender and at the same time, biologically, they belong to a different gender. However, when it comes to transgenderism's um, idea that human beings can have different genders other than male or female, is that a biblical teaching? Let's begin there. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So according to scriptures, when God created human beings, he created them either male or female. There is no other category other than male and female. This is why as far as the biblical stand goes, we don't uh, indicate in any of our applications when they're asking for our gender, other or custom. We are either male or we are either female. So we don't believe in the blurring of this distinction between male and female because God clearly made a distinction between male and female. Now one might say, well, what if a person who is born physiologically or biologically male but this person identifies with the female um, gender. Is it okay for this person to have intercourse with a female? So on and so forth. Is that biblical? Well, let's read the book of Romans 8, 5 to 6. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what nature, what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. So we need to understand something about our human nature because we are flesh, guess what? We are weak, right? We are prone to committing sin. This is why a human being, it doesn't matter where you're born, doesn't matter where you're from, every human being, because he is flesh, he has a sinful nature. Raise your hand if you don't have a sinful nature. Because we have a sinful nature, sometimes we have desires that come from our sinful nature. Is it wrong? Are we committing a sin when we have these feelings that come from our sinful nature? No. But when we act on the sinful nature, when we place our mind on our sinful nature, it's only then that we become guilty of Sin. So, for example, a person who is born female but thinks that he he but thinks that she is a male psychologically and begins to act out according to what she believes, and so committing a sin, committing a sin which is contrary to her nature, then that of course is a sin. But to feel that desire to commit sin in in and of itself is not sin. And this is a problem that people, all people have, not just a person who is quote unquote a transgender, because people who quote unquote are normal, like most people, for example, a male who has a physical attraction towards a female, if the person's already married and has sexual intercourse with someone else, is that a sin? Absolutely. How about premarital sex? Is that a sin? Yes, 
How about getting drunk? Is that a sin? Yes, it all comes from desires that come from the sinful nature. So we're not making transgender desires to be the only sin that come from the sinful nature. All of us as human beings can become victims and slaves of our sinful nature. So categorically, we are not attacking the quote-unquote transgender, but what we are against completely, it's not the person, but it is the action that is of the sinful nature. Rather than living according to the sinful nature, the Bible says we must be controlled by the Spirit which is life. And when it comes to being controlled by the spirit, not by our sinful nature, why should we be concerned about our behavior sexually? Because when we talk about transgenderism, oftentimes it involves sexual behavior and sexual activity. And so because it involves that, what must we always keep in mind? The book of Corinthians 6, 15, 18 to 20, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ, the, the members of Christ, and unite them with a prostitute? Never flee from sexual immorality. All other sin, sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You were not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. For those who belong to Yahushua the Christ, we have this stance. What is our stance? The body we have is no longer ours, right? This is why when people ask us, if, what is your stance concerning transgenderism? Our stance is this. Our body that we have is no longer Ours. Whose is it? It belongs to Yahushua. Why? Because he redeemed us with his blood. So we belong to him now. So what does he want us to do with our body? The Bible says we need to make sure that we keep our body free from sexual immorality. Why? Because it is the temple now of the Holy Spirit. The moment we were purchased by the blood of Yahushua, we have become now a part of Yahushua and therefore the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to preserve this temple. Now, what about people who say, well, I was born physiologically a female, but psychologically, I identify myself as a male. What does that mean? What does that, imp what does that imply? The book of Psalms 139, 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And so the Bible says Yahuwah God was the one who created us in our mother's womb. And when he created us, Yahuwah created also our identity. How? It's manifested in our physiology because Yahuwah God is the one who knit us in our mother's womb. And so if we came out as male, 
physiologically, Yahoo was planned is for us to be male and not female. And so if we are to, for example, desire to change our sex, because nowadays, because of medical technology, it's possible now to get an operation, right? And so a female getting hormone treatment, getting surgery, all of a sudden transforms to becoming male. And so now there's a match between psychological identity and biological entity. But the Bible says the one who created you is, the, is Yahuwah God who created you while you were in your womb. So if a person elects to have an operation or surgery to change his or her uh, biological sex, I believe that is against the will of Yahuwah our God. Why? What must we do with our physical bodies according to uh, the Holy Scriptures? The book of Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Yahusha the Christ. And so because our bodies belong to Yahusha, we must preserve it. And we cannot say we're preserving it. We're not we're, we cannot say we're preserving even our soul and our spirit, which closely ties in with your identity, right? Your identity basically is encompassed by your spirit, your soul, and your body. It should be preserved, not altered, especially if you have been purchased by the blood of Yahusha. Now, what further proves that Yahuwah God is against tampering with one's sexual identity? The book of Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, a woman must not put on men's clothing, and a man must not wear women's clothing. Anyone who does this is detestable in the sight of Yahuwah, your God. So if Yahuwah, our God, has given a law forbidding women to put on men's clothing and, men's, and men from wearing women's clothing, how much more if a man will put on uh, female genitalia and vice versa? For sure, Yahuwah God is against that. And our stand in the assembly of Yahusha is to stand with Yahuwah's decision, with his commandments. Now, how about those who feel much pain? Because those who feel that they are a woman trapped in a man's body and vice versa, like what we mentioned earlier, it is a painful experience. Because there is psychological torment when you are unable to express yourself according to your identity. And it, this brings much suffering and sorrow on the part of the individual who, who call, calls himself or herself a transgender. And so does this mean that we are now um, going to satisfy what we feel inside? Because when a person says, this is what I feel, does it mean we're entitled to do what we feel? Well, this is what the book of Romans teaches in the book in 8.20 to 22, Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subject to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning 
as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The reason why there's so much suffering in the world today is because all creation has been subjected to frustration. Why? Because all creation has been subjected to the bondage of death and decay. What was the cause behind this? It was the sin that was, that was brought forth through the sin of Adam and Eve, right? Because of that, because of the fall, what happened to all creation? It's been subjected to frustration. And we can only imagine the frustration a person might feel when he feels and identifies himself as a male, but physiologically, she is female. That's very difficult. It's frustrating, and it brings a lot of suffering. However, this is true. The, uh, the suffering that people experience, that the, the transgender may experience, are also being felt by other people in different ways. All of us are going through suffering. And so for the transgender, I believe that is your test. All of us will have different tests. There are people who have a difficult time dealing with their sinful desire to alcohol or for, for some people for obesity, right? They cannot, they keep eating. For a lot of us, we have a, lot of, we have a problem with that. We, we eat too much more than we should. That is also a sin. And so it's not just specific to a sexual sin. It is specific to other sins. And because we belong to creation, we are subjected to decay and frustration. So what should we do? Give in to our sinful nature? No, we need to be controlled by the Spirit. And if we are controlled by the Spirit, does it mean we're going to be spared from suffering? If, for example, uh, a person who is transgender becomes a member of the Assembly of Yahusha, begins to obey the commands of God, does it mean this person will no longer feel suffering. Let's read. We read 8.20 to 22. Let's read now verse 23. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children including the new bodies he has promised us. So even we who belong to Yahushua, even we who have the, received the Holy Spirit and have tasted a foretaste of future glory, do we still suffer? Yeah. Why? Because we're still in our body. We have not been released from our physical bodies yet. And so because we have not yet been released from our physical bodies, we will experience sin and suffering. And so the pain and suffering a transgender person may be feeling because they feel their identity is different from the physical manifestation of their bodies, it doesn't mean that it is okay to go ahead and change your sex or to act according to one's sinful nature. All of us as human beings, we will all have our own tests. And what we need to do is to do our best to overcome that test through the power of Yahushua. And the good news is 
one day we will be released from sin and suffering. When? When Yahusha returns. When that happens, what will happen to our bodies? Bible says we will have new bodies that was promised us. And on that day, we will at last be released from sin and suffering. And so our advice for those who are transgender but really want to follow Yahuwah and Yahusha to endure what they're feeling just like other people who are enduring different other tests in their life. We're all in the same place, creation. But we all can have the same hope, liberation, so long as we let the Spirit control our mind instead of we being slaves to the desires of our sinful nature. Instead, let us surrender to Yahuwah's will by allowing the Spirit to control our mind and our behavior. Okay? All right, let's go to our next topic. John, I do have a question uh, which you can include in the Q&A series. In 1 Corinthians 11, 4 to 16, Apostle, Apostle Paul uh, teaches about women covering their heads. Do women have to cover their heads with a scarf or veil when they pray or prophesy or speak the message of God? Or does it mean they should have long hair as a cover? And what did Apostle Paul mean when he said that women... Uh, should cover their heads because of the angels. Okay, very interesting. Let's go to the basis of the question, which is in Corinthians 11, chapter 4, and the verse, uh, <laughs> chapter 11, verses 4 down to 6. This is what it says. So a man who prays or proclaims God's message in public worship with his head covered disgraces Christ. And any woman who prays or proclaims God's message in public worship with nothing on her head, disgraces her husband. There is no difference between her and a woman whose head has been shaved. If the woman does not cover her head, she might as well cut her hair. And since it is a shameful thing for a woman to shave her head or cut her hair, she should cover her head. Okay, so that's what Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 down to 6. And according to Apostle Paul, any woman who, pray, who prays or proclaims God's message in public worship with nothing on her head, with no covering, disgraces her husband. And so her, his conclusion was that she should cover her head. Okay. Now take note, um, there's no mentioning that this is a command of Yahuwah God or a command of Yahusha Mashiach. Instead, what Apostle Paul said is she should cover her, her head. But why? Why does Apostle Paul teach the Corinthian brethren to cover, to for the women in the Corinthian congregation, to cover their head when they are in public worship, either proclaiming or praying uh, to Yahuwah our God? Well, we need to understand the context, right? And so to get the context, we go back to Corinthians chapter 10, because 10 flows nicely to 11. Remember, the Bible has no numbering. And so we cannot say, well, just go to verse 11 or chapter 11, verse 1. We have to go back all the way to chapter 10, 23 to 26. So let's go ahead and do that so that you can understand the principle that Apostle Paul is teaching here. Because what he's teaching to the Corinthians is a principle 
that will lead to better relationships amongst the brethren in the Corinthian congregation. And so let's begin in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 26. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is Yahuwah's and everything in it. And so what is the principle that Apostle Paul was teaching the Corinthian assembly? He said concerning our freedom that we need to apply it with wisdom. Why? Because even though we are allowed to do anything, it doesn't mean um, that everything is good for us. Even though we're allowed to do anything, it doesn't mean that everything is beneficial. And so for us to be able to make the most of our liberties, our freedom in Yahusha, what must we always keep in mind? Bible says in verse 24, what does it say? Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of Others. In other words, what Apostle Paul is saying, yes, we have freedom in Yahusha, but remember to use that freedom for the good of others. Do not use that freedom for the detriment of others. And so what example does Apostle Paul give us concerning the freedom we have now in Yahusha? Apostle Paul says you may now eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace. Before we could not, I mean, before we could not eat pork, right? We could not eat shrimp. And so because we belong to Yahusha, we have freedom now. And so Apostle Paul says, because it is freedom, you cannot go ahead and eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace. However, when he said that, we have to make sure that we have this concern for other people. For example, when it comes to eating certain meats, what does he say? Let's read 27 to 31. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to, eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited? By what someone else thinks, if I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so in this example, Apostle Paul says, if you're invited by a, a non-believer, right, uh, to, to, for, in his house for dinner, he says, accept, your, accept the invitation. And then they serve you meats. Maybe you're with someone else and someone tells you that this meat was offered to an idol. The Apostle Paul says, don't eat it. Not because it's forbidden, but because it will harm the conscience of the person that you are with. And so even though we have the freedom to eat meats that were forbidden before, now, because of that freedom, we have to be careful in how we use that freedom. We have to always consider the other person. So how do we universally apply this principle? Corinthians 10, 31 to 11.1. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that that may that so that many may be saved and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So what is the universal principle that we must apply that is being taught here by the apostle Paul concerning our freedom in Yahushua the Christ. Apostle Paul says don't give offense to Jews, to Gentiles or the church of God. In other words, we need to know what are some of the customs, the traditions of the Jews, the Gentiles. What are the customs and traditions of the church of God? And when we have freedom, we need to honor their customs, their culture. Why? Because we don't want to offend them. Because how can we win them over to Christ if we're going to offend them? You see the point there? And so Apostle Paul says, I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others. And so when we make decisions, we need to consider the effect with the people that you are with, especially if you belong to just one congregation. So coming from Corinthians 11.1, 1, let's jump to 11.2-3. What are some of the customs that was practiced by the assemblies in the first century among the Corinthians? Let's read what it says in Corinthians 11.2-3. Now I praise you, brethren that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So Apostle Paul coming from the principle that we should not offend the Jews, the Gentiles, basically people and their customs and cultures, right? And the church that belong to God. Apostle Paul says we need to be mindful also of their traditions. What specific tradition is Apostle Paul speaking about in Corinthians 11? He was speaking about head coverings on women because that was a cultural thing. It was a way of showing subordination to their to, to the men. And according to the purpose of the letter is to appease the conflict taking place in the Corinthian assembly. Because the brethren in Corinth, because of their freedom in Yahushua, were abusing their freedom. And so the women were no longer regard, they were completely disregarding some of the cultures that was being practiced by the people in that culture. What was one of the traditions that they practiced, which gave honor to the man? It was wearing the head covering. What was the doctrine? That was being communicated by this tradition. The doctrine is the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. In other words, when it comes to authority, there's an orderliness to it, right? For example, God has authority over Christ. This is God's decision. Christ has authority over man. This is God's orderly decision. And then man has authority over women. And so in God's design... This is what needs to follow. This is biblical doctrine. How, and how was this doctrine being expressed in different cultures? In, what, in the Corinthian culture, in Corinthians 11, 4 to 6, so a man who prays or proclaims God's message in public worship 
with his head covered disgraces Christ. And any woman who prays or proclaims God's message in public worship with nothing on her head disgraces her husband. There's no difference between her and the woman whose head has been shaved. If the woman does not cover her head, she might as well cut her hair. And since it is a shameful thing for a woman to shave her head or cut her hair, she should cover her head. And so what was one of the traditions practiced by the Corinthians, which Apostle Paul was writing about to make sure that the brethren will be able to maintain the order according to Yahuwah's will. Well, Apostle Paul says this is how the culture in Corinth is practicing um, the expression of women's authority being underneath the authority of men. Women wear the covering over the head, right? And so it was a, it was a practice during that time in their culture. What was the purpose of the covering of the head? In 11.10, on account of the angels then, a woman should have a covering over her head, her head to show that she is under her husband's authority. And so because this was the practice, the custom, the tradition, and if you were to violate, it's going to create problems. Apostle Paul says that on account of angels, a woman should have a covering over her head to show that she is under her husband's authority. Now, why does Apostle Paul mention the word angel? Because angels throughout scripture, they are also spectators. In the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says angels are watching. And so on account of the angels watching our worship, what they want to see is an orderly type of worship. And so Apostle Paul, after giving this dissertation, what does he say? 13 and 16. Judge for yourselves whether it is proper for a woman to pray to God in public worship with nothing on her head. Why? Nature itself teaches that you teaches you that long hair on a man is a disgrace, but on a woman it is a thing of beauty. Her long hair has been given to her to serve as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about it, all I have to say is that neither we nor the churches of God have any other custom in worship. And so the covering on the head was a custom of worship during the days of the first century in the Corinthian assembly. And so because it is a custom, it should be respected so that it will not create offense with those who believe in that custom, just like there's the custom of eating certain meats, right? And so when we, so the teaching about head covering is not because it is a command of God that a woman must wear a covering, but it is taught by Apostle Paul so that it will not create offense among the Christian believers during that time. Now, does it mean that Apostle Paul is teaching that men and women are not equal, that one is greater over the other? Let's read 11 and 12 in our life in the Lord. However, women is not in, a woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For us, woman was made from man the same way man is born of woman. And it is God who brings everything into existence. And so Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthian brethren that just because there's this hierarchy of authority, which is, which is, implicate which shows or implies that a man 
has greater authority over a woman doesn't mean that the man is greater than the woman. They're equal. However, when it comes to authority inside the assembly, man must have authority over women. However, when it comes to value, men and women are of equal value in the eyes of Yahuwah God. This is why Apostle Paul reminds them, women is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman, because both need one another. Okay? All right. Let's go to our next topic. Also, I'm a little confused about the commandment of not eating of, not eating of blood. Is eating rare steak or raw steak in pho noodles okay? I was taught that it was wrong. But with the new administration, they said it's okay as long as the animal wasn't strangled. Is this true? Okay. All right. Well, when it comes to eating blood, I think for most of us who came from the INC, Galatian Christa, we have been taught ever since the beginning that we should not eat blood, right? And is this a biblical teaching? Absolutely. Is it a teaching during the Christian era? Absolutely. What's the proof? In the book of Acts 15, 19 and 20. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. And so what we read here uh, concerns the decision of the council in Jerusalem concerning what teachings that were taught for the Jewish people back in the Old Testament that apply universally in the assembly, which include Gentiles. And so what did they um, decide upon concerning the assembly that included the Gentiles? And so even though Gentiles are not Jews, they are still to abstain from eating meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. And so even during the Christian era, we are not allowed to eat blood. And we are not allowed to eat meat of strangled animals animals. Why? What is the purpose of this prohibition? For us to be able to answer the question, can I eat medium rare steak? We need to first understand the purpose of God in giving this prohibition, right? Because oftentimes God gives us a reason for why he prohibits certain things. And so let's look at Leviticus 17, 10 down to 12. Why is God prohibiting us from eating uh, blood? Leviticus 17, 10 to 12, and if any native Israelite or foreigner living among you eats or drinks blood in any form, I will turn against that person and cut him off from the community of your people. For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood of the, on the altar to purify you, making you right with Yahuwah. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. That is why I have said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood, neither you nor the foreigners living among you. And so why does God forbid the eating of blood? Yahuwah says, I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you. What does that mean? Yahuwah uses the sacrifices offered by priests when blood is poured on the altar God uses that to forgive us our sins, sins of uh, an atonement for sin. And so blood makes purification possible. 
And after saying that, Yahuwah God says, that is why, that is why I have said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood. And so that's God's purpose in forbidding us from eating blood. Blood is the life. It means Yahuwah uses that to purify us. And so that being said, does it mean now that we cannot eat something like this? Right? Medium rare steak. Look at that, brother. It has blood in it. Right? And when you really think about it, even if it's well done, is there still blood in it? Yeah, it's just cooked better. Right? So either way, you're going to eat part of that blood. If it's medium rare, it's more red. If it's well done, it's no longer red, but the blood is still there. You just cooked it. Right? So either way, you're going to eat part of that blood. And so, what does that mean? We cannot eat steak anymore. We cannot eat medium rare steak. Well, God gave the law. He says, do not eat blood. How do we satisfy the requirement of the law, the commandment of God? This is what he says in Leviticus 17, 13, and 14. And if any native Israelite or foreigner living among you goes hunting and kills an animal or bird that is approved for eating, he must drain its blood and cover it with earth. The life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I have said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood. For the life of any creature is in its blood. So whoever consumes blood will be cut off from the community. So how can we satisfy the requirement of God's command that we must not eat or drink blood? Yahuwah says, if you're going to hunt or kill an animal to eat, what must you do? First of all, during those days, there was no store where you can go and buy meat, right? What do you have to do? You got to go hunt for it. And so when you hunt the meat, hunt for the meat you're going to eat, you're going to kill the animal. What is the instruction of Yahuwah? You have to drain the blood and cover the blood with earth or with dust so that no one else will be in danger of eating that blood. And so once you have done that, you have already satisfied the law or the command of God. Now you have the meat. Is there still blood in the meat? Yes, because you cannot technically remove every single drop of blood from that meat. It's still going to be there, right? It's impossible. And so, but once you've drained the, the animal with its blood, then you have already satisfied the command of God. So if you cook the meat medium rare, that's okay. Because the requirement of the law has already been fulfilled. What is forbidden, though? Well, if you pour the blood on, in a container and then you cook the blood, that is what is wrong, right? But if you drain the blood and you get rid of the blood, you cover it with earth or dust, and then you cook the animal, that's, that's nothing wrong with that. So you can eat the medium rare steak. That's a good thing, isn't it? Okay, let's go to our next question. Uh, we have several questions here. There is Assembly of Yahusha. There are many questions. Very sorry, but the questions are too many. Having stuck in my present faith for more than four years, they are number one. At one time, I had with me an offering to be given a gun. When I was approached by a sister who has a family who have no food, medication. I wasn't rich and I had with me just the offering. I gave it to the family. I did not have a guilty conscience, even until a fellow brethren said I should not. 
What would God think? Okay, so here's the situation. He has his offering, right? And all of a sudden, a person who is in need of food and medication approaches this person, this uh, brother or sister, and this brother or sister gave the offering to uh, the person in need because they needed food and medication. And so is that wrong? What do you guys think? Is that wrong? Is it right? Right? Well, let's go ahead and find out. I mean, what is Yahuwah's command? What does he want us to do? Because remember, when we give offering to God, what is its purpose? It's to glorify God. Is it because God needs it? <laughs> does God need the, 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 the money that we offer to him? Will he say, oh, thank you for giving me that $5? <laughs> is, is Yahuwah God glorified with that? No. Yahuwah God is glorified when the purpose of his commands are being fulfilled. Do you know what Yahuwah God has repeated again and again throughout scripture? If you will read scripture from cover to cover, there's one thing that kind of stands out. What is that? In the book of Deuteronomy 15, 10 to 11, give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for Yahuwah your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with the Israelites in need. What gives glory to God? What gives him pleasure and joy? It's when we help the poor. You know that the poor, that they're in the heart of God. God thinks about them. And because God thinks about them, God gives us a command. What is that? Give generously to the poor. In fact, Yahuwah God emphasized that so much, he added a great blessing. You notice the blessing he attaches when we help the poor? What does Yahuwah say? God will bless you in everything that you do. And so what is the command? Do not just give. Give generously. Not only to give generously, to give freely. Because this glorifies God. As a matter of fact, because Yahuwah God wants us to help the poor in need. Do you know what he says? If we, in fact, are able to help those in need, Proverbs 19, 17, if you help the poor, you are lending to Yahuwah and he will repay you. This is why this person who was approached by someone who's poor, has no food, needs medication, and gives the offering that he was going to give to God to this person. Do you think God is glorified? Yeah. Because the Bible says if you help the poor, you are lending to Yahuwah and he will repay you. It's what Yahuwah would have wanted. That's why if Yahuwah spoke to you at that instance, you have this offering that you're going to give to him. What do you think Yahuwah would have said to that person? I don't need that money, but that person does. Right? And so we have to understand the spirit behind the commands of God is for us to be helpful to others. Right? Because the spirit of love is behind every command that Yahuwah God has given to each one of us. But one might say, but I have promised, I have set aside this offering for Yahuwah God. Does that mean I'm committing a sin? I don't think so. Why? Take a look at this. Matthew 15, 3-6. Yahusha replied, why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully, father and mother, must be put to death. But you say, 
it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. Well, this has been set aside. This offering has been set aside for God. Does that mean we cannot use that to help other people? Well, Yahusha says you should not say to your parents, the money I was going to use to help you, I've already vowed to give to God. Yahusha says that's wrong. You're violating a direct commandment of God. And so Yahushua now is emphasizing to us what Yahuwah emphasized concerning uh, the poor. He's telling us when it comes to offering, when it comes to monetary, uh, monetary things that we can use as a term of offering, we can use that to directly help people, especially our parents. So if you feel kind of guilty, why don't we just pray? Right? Yahuwah God, this is my offering for you. I give it to you as an offering. And this offering is presented in honor of you to help this person who is in need. Right? Pray for it. I dedicate this offering to you for the benefit of this person who is in need. Do you think Yahuwah God would like that? Absolutely. So you had no right to feel guilty because you did what Yahuwah would have approved. Okay, let's go to question number two. Can I still be registered in the assembly of Yahusha, even if I am still registered in the INC? Anyway, you mentioned it's not wrong that the church was called Church of Christ. Right? Okay, so if you are listed in the INC, you want to be registered in the assembly of Yahusha, well, we will not forbid you. We will not say to you, you have to be delisted first. We have that freedom. However, like what we mentioned earlier, right? There's always something we need to understand about our freedom in Yahusha. What is that? Corinthians 10, 23. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Two things we have to consider, brethren. You're making a decision. You are still listed in some other religion, right? But you want to be a member of the assembly of Yahusha. What should we always consider? What must we always remember in our decision? Number one, is it good for you? For example, you're listed in one religion and you want to be in the assembly of Yahusha. Wait a minute. What if there's conflict there, right? What are you going to do if there's conflict there? Is it going to help you and your integrity? And so you have to keep that in mind. Because yes, you can definitely be a member of the Assembly of Yahusha. You can register. But if you will not renounce membership in another church or another religious group, what if there's conflict? You're going to have a problem within yourself, a problem of integrity. Number two, uh, is it beneficial, right? I mean, would it be beneficial for you and others? Also, we need to consider the fact, are we glorifying God by being belonging to two different groups and they don't have the same faith? And so that's something that we want you to think about. We will accept you. You can be a member of the Assembly of Yahusha. Is it good for you? Is it beneficial for you? Does it give glory to God? You, you alone can answer that uh, question. Okay. 
Okay, can I register my loved ones in the assembly of Yahusha without them knowing it? No, that's called deception. We should not do that. Let's go to number four. That's an easy one. Uh, do you have expulsion? Well, what is we do have expulsion, but what does it mean? We talked about this before in, in a different episode, but really, really quickly, Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Is there expulsion? Should there be expulsion in the assembly? There should be. But who should be expelled? Those who are considered wicked. What does that mean? To be wicked. Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. And so who are considered wicked and should be expelled from the assembly or from the church? Well, those who are sexually immoral, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler, greedy. Bible says they are wicked and we should not associate with them. And so they are the people um, that we need to expel or remove from the assembly. Now, what does expulsion mean and how should it be done? Again, Corinthians 5, 4 to 5, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Yahusha, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Yahusha is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And so how is expulsion done? Bible says through an assembly. In other words, there's an assembly of elders, advisors who will convene, who will deliberate on the issue. This is what happened in the first century. However, in this deliberation, it was done in the spirit of Apostle Paul. What does that mean? In other words, the purpose of what Apostle Paul preached must be um, manifested. What else? And most important of all, what must be present? The power of Lord Yahusha, the Christ. The spirit of Yahusha, the power of Yahusha must be present. In other words, what we are talking about here, there must be a process of binding and loosing, deliberating through the word of God to determine whether or not this person has violated the teachings of God. We talked about this process before. And so this is the process of expulsion. It's not one man making a decision. But it's an assembly deliberating with Yahushua's presence and with the teachings of God preached by the apostles also being enacted. That is the process of expulsion. Now, what is the meaning of expulsion? Does it mean removal from the body of Yahushua? Not necessarily. What is its purpose? The Bible says so that the sinful nature of the one being expelled may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So the purpose is discipline so that the person can be saved. What else is the purpose of expulsion? Six to seven. You're boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. But also is the purpose of expulsion. It is so that the sin will not affect, or I should say, 
should I say, infect the rest of the congregation. Because if you will not take action on the sin of an individual, you might be communicating to the rest of the congregation that this sin is okay. You can practice this sin, right? Number two, if the person is not removed from the fellowship, this person can bring harm to the other individuals spiritually and physically who belong to the congregation. And so it's a way of protecting the assembly just the way sin is like yeast that spreads throughout the whole dough. A person who's not removed is like a cancer cell that destroys the entire body. And so that's the other purpose of expulsion. Should it be practiced? Yes, to protect the assembly of Yahusha. Okay, let's go to the next question. Wow, we have all one, five, six, seven, eight. Five, how can you overseer us when we are in different countries and where language may be a barrier? That's a good question. How can we oversee the members of the assembly of Yahusha? Perfect question. Let's go to Jeremiah 23, three down to four. But I will gather the remnant of my flock from the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their own sheepfold, and they will be fruitful and increase in number. Then I will appoint responsible shepherds who will care for them, and they will never be afraid again. Not a single one will be lost or missing. I, Yahuwah, have spoken. How can we take care of the brethren? How can we oversee the brethren when they are from different countries? First of all, the Bible speaks here in a prophecy concerning the work of God when his people are scattered, because we can see the pattern of scattering and regathering throughout scripture. And even during these last days, we saw the scattering of God's people. And again, God has gathered them. And during our time, God fulfilled this prophecy, bringing a people to have their own sheepfold. We now have the assembly of Yahusha. What is the purpose of God in bringing us together in one sheepfold or assembly? Bible says so that we can have responsible shepherds who will take care of them. This is why the question is a very, very pertinent and relevant question. How will we be cared for when we come from different countries? You know how? Through technology. Now, this was not possible. This was not possible during the days of the Israelites. But take a look at the prophecy, how the remnants from different countries will be gathered in their own Sheepfold, I ask you, how can that be possible? How can we have just one sheepfold when we have different countries? How can we have one sheepfold when we, because of technology, we cannot have one sheepfold because our congregation now is virtual. You notice that? It's virtual. It's only at this time can we actually take care of everyone who belong to the assembly, even if they are from different parts of the world. This is why we are improving in the way we take care of the brethren, because we need to make sure not a single one will be missing. Everyone will be cared for. When it mentions everyone will be cared for, what does that mean? It means feeding them. What do we feed? The assembly of Yahusha, the word of God. What else? We must protect them. How do we protect the assembly of Yahusha? By teaching them the word of God. How do we counsel and give biblical advice and comfort those who are wounded by teaching them the word of God. So what is the basis for taking care of the brethren? It is through the word of 
gone. Are we able to do that virtually? Yes. Right? Nowadays, we have the Zoom app. It is as though we were in the same room, isn't it? You can be in the Philippines. You can be in the Middle East. It doesn't matter. Because of technology, we can be together. And because we can be together, we can share with you what you need, the word of God. We can give you biblical advising. We can counsel you with the word of God. And so this is how we do it through technology. And we have some exciting news that we are going to relate to you after our Passover. Uh, how we can be, we can have different uh, groups and we can have different elders who will be overseeing. This is why we also have the school or the ministry. We're, we're going to be training individuals so that they can also be useful in pastoral ministry. The curriculum has been set up precisely to fulfill this need of shepherds who will be able to take care of them. So it will not just be me. There'll be others and we will work together to provide the care by preaching the word of God, providing counseling and care for those who need it. Okay, so this will be uh, something that is possible during our time. Uh, let's go to number six, which is related, new ministers enrollment. Do you think it is a bit too late for this since judgment day is fast approaching? And I've heard that before. Judgment day is fast approaching. I remember 2008, was it 2008? I was in the local congregation of, uh, I think it was Redwood City. And there was this earthquake and a tsunami. And the administration said, oh, Judgment Day is going to be like in 2000, it's going to be at hand, right? Well, it's already 2021. During the days of Brother Felix Monaldo, a lot of people thought it was during his lifetime that Judgment Day was going to come, right? And so we know that Judgment Day is fast approaching, right? But do we know the exact date of when Judgment Day will be? We don't, right? And so what is Apostle, what is Apostle Part Peter teach us whenever people say, well, it's almost judgment day, but people always have been saying it's very close and the, the end is approaching. This is what the reason is. This is what we need to do. Why has judgment day not come yet? Let's read the book of 2 Peter 3 to 4, 9 to 10. First of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Apparently, the reason why they're scoffers is because ever since the beginning, people have been announcing the, the, the approaching day of judgment, right? But it hasn't come yet. And we're now at the latter end, at the latter parts of the ends of the earth, and it still hasn't come. But Apostle Peter says, be patient, right? And he goes on, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Do we know when judgment day is? We don't know the exact date. Do we know we're close? I think we're close. How close? We don't know, right? What's the point? What is the point of Apostle Peter? Apostle Peter's point is this. If judgment day hasn't come yet, 
It only means there's, there's something Yahuwah God wants us to do. What is that? We get the clue from what Apostle Peter says. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Why? What follows next? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Judgment day is not yet here. Why? Because Yahuwah God still wants people to come to repentance, to, re to receive salvation, because he doesn't want anyone to perish. And so what does that mean? It means we have work to do. Just because judgment day hasn't come yet doesn't mean we're going to sit on our laurels, sit on the couch and just wait passively. There's a difference between passive waiting and active waiting. What Apostle Peter wants us to do is active waiting. What does that mean? We wait for the second advent of Yahusha. In our waiting, we are actively involved in creating repentance, in getting people to repent so that they will not perish. And so what should we do? What must we do before judgment day comes? In the book of Matthew 28, 18, 20, then Yahusha came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so what should we do? Uh, while we wait for the advent of Yahushua, so that people will repent. The Bible says we have to teach. We have to make disciples of all people. Well, who's going to teach? The more the teachers we more teachers we have, the more reach we have, right? And so how can we have teachers? Well, they have to be trained. They have to be taught because they can't just teach whatever they want. They have to teach what the Bible says. This is why it's not too late. We still have life. We still have the opportunity to bring more and more people into salvation. And so instead of passively waiting, we need to be actively involved. This is why it's good that there are people who do want to join the ministry. And so if you are interested in joining the ministry, please let us know so that you can be added to the list of students we're going to be training. Okay. Okay. Let's go to the next question. Number seven. What? We are afraid of is that if some registered names will be known, how our names be kept confidential because they were betrayed in the early years when groups were formed and some groups are actual spies for the INC. That's true. You know, we even had a spy who, who was a minister of the INC, a spy, and they preached in our pulpits and they stole a video and uploaded it on YouTube. And we were like dumbfounded. How did that happen? And we found out later on he was a spy. He purposely came and infiltrated our ranks to spy on our liberty. And I know what you're feeling. So sometimes because of this, there's this tendency, okay, what, what are we going to do? Does it mean we're not going to go through with the registration? We're not going to be part of the assembly? We're not going to do the work that was entrusted to us anymore? Is that, is that what it means? Because we, were, we became victims. Yes. There were spies who came and they actually stole, uh, got some videos. I'm not going to mention the name, Aspiras. I'm not going to mention the name, right? But it happened to us. 
And so are we surprised though that this will happen? Actually, no. In Galatians 2, 4 to 5, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Yahusha and to make us slaves. We, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. You know, this happened about four years ago. It's a good thing we did not give in to them, right? Apostle Paul said this happened during his time. There are always going to be false brothers, and I'm sure there are probably some. We cannot get rid of them. We will do our best to screen them out, but we can only do so much, right? There's always going to be false brothers. What will they do? Spy on our freedom. But does it mean we should be hindered by them? No. Apostle Paul says we did not give in to them for a moment. We need to continue with our work. And so to answer the question, how about the confidentiality? We have only a very few number of brethren who have access to those files. And to the best of our knowledge, they can be trusted. And so there's a breach in confidence. There's a breach somehow. We know who to talk to, right? So to the best of our ability, your, your data is kept secret and it is protected. At the same time, however, we never know what can happen because the devil, the devil will certainly try and spy, use false brethren to infiltrate what we're doing. But we are not afraid. We will continue on with the work. Uh, number eight, as for the assembly of Yahusha Pagsamba, we cannot attend sometimes due to the time difference. Can we attend them in YouTube and treat it as a worship service for us? Why not? Right? I mean, when you think about worship, there's personal worship and there's a congregational worship. Are both worship? Yeah. Okay. When we meet for worship, what is the important part of worship? Well, in the book of Matthew 18 and 20, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. And so we need to do this in the name of Yahushua. You see, when we're gathered in the same purpose of worship, for example, you're watching a video, a YouTube video, right, of our worship gathering, and you're with your family, two or three, or one or two, and you do it in the name of Yahushua, is that worship? Yes. Can Yahushua be with you? Yes. However, we would suggest that when you have your prayer, you should have your own prayer as well, right? Because the prayer on the YouTube is not live. So as much as possible, uh, we should meet. We, we, should be, we, we want to have a live worship with the rest of the congregation who are situated throughout the different parts of the world. So we're going to have more schedules when we have the ministers who are being trained. We're going to have, more diff we're going to have different schedules for Pagsamba or worship service okay number nine aol i don't know who aol is or i'm a thing i'm thinking it's aoy right or am i wrong yeah. aoy assembly of i mean i don't know l brother aol aoy is not the first to proclaim and teach god's christ's real name and also the red heifer so how to rebuke them and tell them that I feel the spirit was with AOL, even though they teach things the same. Okay. And so the question is, um, those who, uh, I guess this person wants to be with Assembly of Yahusha, but there are people 
who are hindering this person from joining the Assembly of Yahusha, telling them that uh, the Assembly of Yahusha is not the real, you know, it's not legit because they have the same beliefs as people who taught about the name and about the red heifer. Okay. And so, because they're not the first to proclaim or teach God's real name, and they're not the first to teach about the red heifer, therefore, they must not belong to God. And so I guess when the common question there is, why should we and become a member of the assembly of Yahusha when what they taught is not original, right? But my my point, but the way I would answer that is, it's not about being original. You don't want to be original. You want to be fundamental. You want to go back to what the Bible actually teaches, right? It's not about who teaches it. It's about where it came from. And so there are people who, for example, say, well, how about look at Brother Felix Faimanalo, right? All of his teachings are original. It came from him. Is that true? All the teachings of Brother Felix Manalo? For example, this is what Brother Felix Manalo taught concerning Revelation 6, 12 to 13. The great earthquake, November 1, 1755, Lisbon. Darkening of the sun, May 19, 1780, New England, right? Dark day. Stars of heaven falling, November 13, 1833, meteor shower. So what we have here is Revelation chapter 6, 12 to 13, a prophecy that was taught by Brother Felix Manalo. And the explanation of what these events and how they were fulfilled, November 1, May 19, November 13. But who was the first one to preach that? Well, let's read regarding the dark day of 1780. Ellen White mentions May 19, 1780. What else did Ellen White teach? Meteor shower, November 13, 1833. And so Ellen White was the one who taught the prophecies in Revelation chapter 6 that was taught by Brother Felix Y. Manolo, right? And who was Ellen White? She happens to be a woman. <laughs> Look at that, right? And when was she born? 1827. When did she die? 1915. And so the doctrines, the first ones to the first one to preach about Revelation chapter 6 was not Brother Felix Y. Manolo. It was Ellen G. Why? Did we believe it? We believed it because it's what? It's scriptural, right? Well, how about the teaching concerning the Viker, the Son of God? Vicarus, Philidi, number of the beast, 666. Was that originally and preached first by Brother Felix Manala? No. It was in this book, Uriah Smith, a Seventh-day Adventist. He says, Vicarus, Philidi, the, the, about the Pope's title. And if you calculate the number 666, Six, when was this published? 1884, before 1914. This is why the first one to teach that was not Brother Felix Wymanoa. Well, how about the signature teaching or doctrine of INC? That Yahusha, the Christ is not God, but a man. Was he original with that? No. This was a teaching of the Christadelphians. Christ is a man, the son of God, certainly not God himself. Jesus always very clearly pointed out his subservience to God, right? And you look at the verses that they use, it's what was used also by Brother Felix Manalo. But who was the one who started this, who first taught it? John Thomas, 1805 to 1871, before the time of Brother Felix Y. 
Manolo. Not only that, the English and Tagalog Bibles, were they translated by Brother Felix Juan Manolo? No. There were scholars who did the translation, right? These were the work of Catholic and Protestant biblical scholars. This is why the name Jesus was a product of Protestant and Catholic biblical scholar translation work. And so who, was, who were the first ones to teach that? Well, it was not Brother Felix Manalo. And so the point is, it's not about who teaches it first. It's about where the source of the teaching came from. You get that? Because if we're going to look at the one who taught it, then we are missing the point. Because the point of the teachings of Scripture is not, the, is not about the one who taught it, but about the one of whom the, script, the Scripture is speaking about. Who is that? Yahusha. Can you imagine? Who was the one who taught that? Is that originally his? Why are you asking that question? Because I want to know if he's the teacher. No, the teacher is who? Yahusha. What's the important point? The important part, it, part is, is it biblical? Is it in the Bible? Why? 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 17. And you remember that ever since you were a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Yahusha. All Scripture is inspired by God. And is useful for teaching the truth, rebuking error, correcting faults, and giving instruction for right living. So that the person who serves God may be fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. What must be the basis of our faith? It's not the one who teaches it. It must be based upon the Holy Scriptures. Why? Because all Scripture is inspired by God. And what we find in Scripture is what will qualify and equip us to be able to serve God and to have the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ, Yahusha. However, does it mean all we need to do is have the Bible at hand? No, right? This is where we need to actually take action. Yes, we have the Bible. Praise us be to Yahuwah our God. But what is our responsibility? Corinthians 2.14, a person who isn't spiritual, doesn't accept the teachings of God's spirit. He thinks they're nonsense. He can't understand them because a person must be spiritual to evaluate them. And so when a person is speaking to us from the Bible, what is our responsibility? We have to evaluate, right? What do you mean? How do we evaluate something that's being preached from the Holy Scriptures? Corinthians 2.13, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. How must we evaluate uh, teachings that come to us from different sources? When you go to YouTube, when you go to Facebook, when you listen to various videos of people using the Bible and preaching from a pulpit, when we receive these teachings, how must we evaluate them? By comparing spiritual things. With spiritual. In other words, we need to make sure the context is right, right? Not out of context, because it's so easy to twist scripture. You take it out in isolation, you make it a, you can make it communicate whatever you want. Look at the context, what comes before it, what comes after it. Check out the context not only within the chapter, but also within the entirety of scripture. That's what it means to compare spiritual things with 
spiritual. And once we do that, what are we to do? Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't despise what God has revealed. Instead, test everything. Hold on to what is good. And so when we test everything, what is good, we hold on to. And so here's someone teaching about the name Yahuwah and Yahusha. Did we accept that? Did we test it? Yeah. We went through the process of testing it because this is what we need to do. When we tested it, what did we find? It is good. And so we believed it. We kept it. Right? Same thing with the red heifer. Is it biblical? Yes. Should we believe it? Yes. And so that is our basis, not the one who teaches. Is it in the Bible? Because when we will accept doctrine because of someone who taught it, what is your degree? Are you, who are you? Then we're missing the point of the scriptures. Do you know what the point of scriptures is? Here it is. John 5, 39, 40. You search the scriptures because you think they give eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. It's so unfortunate. There are people today who are saying, well, okay, you're teaching the Bible, right? And then they're saying, but it was not taught by Brother Felix Manalo. It was never taught by Brother Felix Manalo. So we will not believe it. Then they miss the whole point of scripture. What's the whole point of scripture? It's not about Brother Felix Manalo. It's about what the scriptures point to. Who did the scriptures point to? Yahushua said, you search the scriptures. But they speak of me. They point to me. You seek scriptures, but you don't come to me. You go to Brother Felix Manalo instead. And so you miss the whole point. The whole point of scripture is not to convince us to place our trust in the one who teaches now. No, the point of scripture is for us to place our trust and hope to the one that scriptures point to. Who is that? Yahusha. You see the point? And this is why we have to make sure that we don't end up in idolatry when we study the scriptures. Because when we emphasize the teacher, when we say things like, are you the original teacher? Because when you think about the original teacher, who is he? It's the Holy Spirit. Right? Because all scripture is inspired by God. Not a man here on earth. No. It's not about the human teachers. It's about the teaching of God through his spirit. And they point to a man. The son of God. Yahusha. Our king. And so when you go back and you start debating, okay, is he the original one who taught that? Then you miss the whole point. The whole point of scripture is to teach us, to point us to Yahusha, our king. Okay. Okay. That is our episode for tonight. Thank you for joining. Before we conclude, let us stand for our prayer. Almighty and gracious Father Yahuwah, thank you so much. For all of your blessings. Yes. Thank you for giving us the answers we seek. Yes. From your holy book. We find direction. Yes. We find your light. Yes. We find comfort in your promises. Amen. Bless your people. Bless the assembly of Yahushua. Amen. We believe our purpose. Is to proclaim your name. And your message of righteousness. That many more will come to repentance. 
and receive the promised salvation. Amen. We will do our best, O oh Father, yes. but we don't rely on our own ability, yes. nor our own strength. Please, Father, continue to bless our work. May it reach more and more people, more and more may be embraced by Amen. salvation. Yahushua, you are the purpose of scripture. Yes. And so Amen. we look up to you now. We yes. place our trust and hope in you, not in anyone else here on earth, but you and you alone, the one given by Yahuwah Abba yes. for our salvation. Amen. Please be with your servants. Help us to learn, to place our complete hope and trust in you yes. as we carry out our work in this journey. Amen. Father, please continue to forgive our sins. Yes. Bless yes. our brethren who are in need. Yes. Heal those who were sick among us yes. and restore us completely. Amen. We ask and beg all things, loving Abba, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. Amen.